Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. I'm excited to welcome you to Talking Sleep, a podcast that will explore a wide variety of topics related to the clinical practice of sleep medicine. For this episode, we're going to discuss how to manage cases of refractory RLS. Our correspondent, Dr. Sogol Javahari, talks with Dr. John Winkleman, Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and Chief of the Sleep Disorders Clinical Research Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Winkleman's primary research interests include the epidemiology, physiology, and treatment of RLS. This discussion will cover augmentation versus the natural progression of RLS, review the role of dopamine agonists in the treatment of RLS, and provide us with a better understanding of the use of opiates in treating the sleep disorder. I'll turn it over to Dr. Javahari to get us started. Dr. Winkleman, my first question for you is regarding diagnosis of augmentation versus natural progression of restless legs. When patients come to clinic and complain that their restless leg symptoms are occurring earlier, what specific questions might you ask to help differentiate between natural progression of the disease where you might increase the dose of the medication they're already on versus augmentation? Uh, so, well, that's a, a very difficult issue. Um, we don't have a tremendous amount of data on natural progression of RLS, but it in many uh, respects, is similar to what we see in augmentation with an earlier appearance of symptoms, shorter duration of action of the medications, less efficacy of the medications, extension of symptoms to the upper extremities. So these can all be features of both natural progression and augmentation. I think the primary uh, distinction has to do with the speed at which those processes occur. Generally, they're going to occur more quickly under um, augmentation than under natural progression. But uh, given that augmentation can happen uh, not quickly over a matter of years, uh, it can be difficult to distinguish them. However, even if you suspect natural progression and you've got a worsening of RLS, I think we have to be conservative and uh, assume that if people are having earlier appearance or worsening symptoms or shortened duration of a, action of the medications, we have to um, assume that this is augmentation and be extremely cautious with the use of dopaminergic agents because they will just, uh, over the longer term, worsen things because the higher the dose of the dopamine agonist you get to, the more promotion of uh, augmentation you get. Certainly, a red line should be um, drawn if patients get the dopamine agonist doses that are above FDA-recommended upper limits. At that point, we have to um, uh, change, as we'll talk about it momentarily, I'm sure, we'll have to either augment or change these agents um, because at that point we're um, crossing the line into where the dopamine agonists become more harmful than helpful. And 
Have you found that the frequency or onset of augmentation is dependent on the dose of dopamine agonist? Yes. I think that that's quite clear at this point. We did a study uh, that uh, we compared primipexol to preavalin as well as placebo. Uh, published in the New England Journal in 2015, showing that rates of augmentation, even at one year, with 0.5 milligrams of primipexol were double what they were with 0.25 milligrams of primipexol. So the higher dose leads to more augmentation. Unfortunately, that leads clinicians to raise the dose, which increases both the likelihood and the speed of augmentation, and round and round you go. So at a certain point, and I would generally say uh, 0.75 milligrams, maybe one milligram of primipexol, four milligrams of rapinerol, uh, three milligrams of ritigotine. At that point, those are the upper limits for FDA-recommended doses. You need to start uh, dialing down and using other agents for the RLS uh, rather than the dopamine agonists. And when you start treating a case of restless leg syndrome, do you typically start with dopamine agonists or do you prefer to start with gabapentin and a carbol or pregabalin? I prefer to start with a non-dopaminergic agent, uh, all else being equal. We um, published um, a paper a few years ago, the International Restless Leg Syndrome Study Group. Uh, Garcia Borreguero is the first author, um, and the title is something like uh, First-Line Treatments for Restless Leg Syndrome, and the reasoning for when you would use an alpha-2 delta and when you would use a dopamine agonist is clearly laid out there in a table. There are times when you may want to use a dopamine agonist preferentially, but uh, all else being equal, I'd rather use an alpha-2 delta like gabapentin, gabapentin, and a carbol or pregabalin. And when you have a patient presenting to you with earlier symptoms of their restless legs or whom you are concerned they may be developing some augmentation, and they're on dopaminergic agents at that point, uh, do you typically switch them to gabapentin and a carbol or pregabalin at that point? And if so, how do you wean, and, and do you wean the dopaminergic agent at that point? Right. Um, Sogo, what I do is I will allow them, depending upon their dose of the dopamine agonist, I will allow them uh, some... Um, earlier dosing of the dopamine agonist. So let's say you started it at 10 p.m. initially, they came back a year later, they're having symptoms at 7 p.m. I will allow them uh, or encourage them to take the dopamine agonist earlier, uh, let's say 6 p.m. for a period of time, because in some cases, people will augment to, let's say, 6 p.m. and may never augment again, to an earlier time or to less efficacy of the medication. Um, and I certainly have those patients in my practice. So I will slide earlier with them and maybe slide to a higher dose um, on at least one uh, follow-up appointment. However, if this becomes evolving augmentation, so now symptoms are starting at 4 o'clock, or now symptoms are going to the upper extremities, or now 
uh, symptoms are returning in the middle of the night or in the morning, indications of evolving augmentation. At that point, I will um, have a discussion with the patient that it looks as if the medication may be doing more harm than help and um, discuss methods by which we might uh, change these medications. And I will have had those discussions from the first visit if I'm going to initiate dopamine agonists. I'll make clear that augmentation is a risk and make clear to them the conditions under which I would uh, feel that the dopamine agonists are no longer in their best interests and make clear to them what the alternatives are so that they're prepared. And I'll do that at every visit. So if I see them every six months, I'll do that at each one of the visits just to review it so that there's no surprises if the augmentation develops. And so then the second part of your question is how do I manage this? In patients where evolving augmentation is occurring, the best approach is for patients to eventually be off the dopamine agonist. So how do we do that? It's not simple. It's not simple at all, because if you're talking to these patients and they, if you ask them, have you ever missed a night or missed a few hours, they will tell you in no uncertain terms that they have a significant uh, rebound of RLS. I would call this uh, dopamine agonist withdrawal, and really the main feature is a significant rebound of RLS with really worsening symptoms that get quite, quite bad. My approach is to add the agent that you hope to replace the dopamine agonist with, whether that be gabapentin, gabapentin enocarbal, or pregabalin, uh, which are going to be my first-line approaches. Add that, get it up, get those medicines, whichever one you choose, up to an effective dose. For gabapentin, you're generally going to have to split the dose probably into 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. or 6 p.m., 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. doses because gabapentin is poorly absorbed above 6 or 800 milligrams, whereas if you split the doses, then you get linear pharmacokinetics. Um, so I'm going to add those other agents. Once symptoms are under better control, then I'm going to very, very slowly taper the dopamine agonist. And I reinforce this to the patients that this is going to take a matter of months, maybe many, many months before they're going to be off the dopamine agonist. And the duration of the taper is oftentimes dependent on the dose that they're on and the duration of use of the dopamine agonist, just like any withdrawal phenomenon would be. And um, I just go down very slowly telling patients that they can expect three to seven days of worsening symptoms each time they drop the dopamine agonist dose, that that's not going to be a surprise, that's, an that's anticipated, that doesn't mean they need that higher dose, but this is just withdrawal and that they should try to hang in there. I have them know that they can contact me if things are not um, improving uh, after, let's say, seven days. Then I give them a week or two at that lower dose and then very carefully, again, lower the dose. 
each time by, let's say, 10 to 25% of the total daily dose. I strongly encourage them to follow my directions. Many people say, I just wanted to get off the medicine, so I stopped it all in a week or two, and it was terrible, and I'm never going to try that again. So if you don't discourage them from doing it too quickly, you'll have better success in the long term. Thank you so much. I want to jump back to something you said during the first part of your answer. You mentioned that for patients who initially present with earlier symptoms, you might slide first to an earlier timing of the medication and or a higher dose, and they may never augment again. When that happens, how long should one wait until they follow up with the patient again after doing that? Well, I, my, my patients have access to me through um, our secure email, and I will say to them, let's make this change, and I want you then to email me in a month and let me know how it's going. If you prefer to see them in the office for a short visit, that's totally reasonable as well. Um, that change should um, produce benefit um, for earlier symptoms or for middle-of-the-night symptoms quite quickly. Dopamine agonists work very quickly. Unfortunately, as you withdraw from them, the withdrawal happens very quickly as well. So, you know, you use your clinical judgment as to how often you want to have contact with patients. My feeling is I'd rather have them just touch base with me, let me know how it's going um, in a matter of a couple weeks, and I think that that reassures them that uh, they're being um, monitored Usually then that then relieves them of the necessity of letting me know how things are going because they know that uh, I'm available if they uh, want to contact me. Let's pause for a moment before we learn more about managing refractory RLS. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Bring the annual excellence of the sleep meeting to your own home with a virtual sleep meeting held August 27th through the 30th. Attendees will have exclusive access to pre-conference sessions, plus more course content and speakers than ever before, with recordings available on demand after the meeting. Learn more at sleepmeeting.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Let's return to our discussion with Dr. Sogol Javahari and Dr. John Winkleman. Let's say now we've exhausted our uh, arsenal with gabapentin, gabapentin uh, carbol, and pregabalin, and we've used dopamine patches and, and dopamine agonists, and either the patient has such severe RLS that none of these are uh, quite controlling their symptoms to the degree that they're able to sleep uh, to an extent that they feel rested the next day, or uh, that they have augmented so severely that none of these medications are, are controlling them uh, if you were to use an opiate, what would you recommend starting with? Okay, before I answer that, Sogol, I do want to make very clear something that I should have at the beginning. Augmentation um, is certainly a complication of dopamine agonists, but before you declare that it is augmentation, you want to recognize that there are augmentation mimics, things that make RLS worse, that appear to be augmentation but are really due to something else. The obvious one, of course, is um, uh, iron deficiency. And so you want to uh, make sure 
that ferritin levels are above uh, 75 and the transparent saturation is above 20%. You need to check both. You need to, when you're getting iron studies, you need to get iron, transparent saturation, that gives you the transparent, uh, the percent, um, as well as ferritin, because ferritin can be falsely elevated. I just saw a guy today um, who had ferritin over 300, which he's had for a couple of years, and his transferrin saturation is 14%. This guy is iron deficient. You can't just pay attention to the ferritin. That will mislead you. You also want to make sure that they're not taking medications that can worsen RLS. They may have just started a serotonergic antidepressant. Can't tell you how many times I saw this. They say, my RLS is much worse. It's starting earlier. It's much worse at night. And we go into great detail. I can't think of anything. I said, has anything changed? No, no, no. And I said, by chance, did you start an antidepressant? Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. Three months ago, six months ago, I started some philoxetine or sertraline or venlafaxine or whatever. And so you need to think with them about that. Similarly, make sure that the obstructive sleep apnea is well treated. So all of these things that can mimic augmentation should be very carefully evaluated. I would just like to add, I've had this happen with patients before with alcohol actually as well. Uh, if they begin drinking heavily, sometimes they, when they didn't used to, may have worsening of their RLS. And when we cut back or cease alcohol, they, they do have some improvement in their restless leg syndrome without us having to alter their medication. Absolutely. And maybe not even drinking heavily. You hear from patients, all it takes is a glass or two of wine to really provoke RLS. It doesn't, RLS doesn't like alcohol. Maybe it does like alcohol. So <laughs> your, so then your question becomes, at what point do you choose opioids and which opioids do you choose? So if the alpha 2 delta agents are not effective or not well tolerated, and not everybody tolerates these medicines, particularly uh, well, I can't even say particularly, people who are sensitive to the sedative effects, people who are sensitive to um, gait instability, um, or I've seen a number of people develop significant depressive symptoms on alpha-2 delta. So maybe a third of people just don't tolerate those medicines. So if they don't tolerate them or they're not effective in managing their RLS and the mimics are not present, then we need to think about opioids. I generally only use long-acting opioids for the treatment of RLS. I rarely use short-acting opioids like oxycodone. The problem with oxycodone, number one, it has fast onset, is therefore more likely to produce a little bit of a buzz. Number two, it has a short duration of action, and when it wears off, people are going to have withdrawal, interdose withdrawal. So in, uh, I usually, so these people with augmentation oftentimes have symptoms at least 12 hours a day from, you know, from um, 4 p.m. or 2 p.m. until 4 a.m. or 6 a.m. So they've got most of the day symptoms, so I want to treat their RLS with coverage that lasts most of the day. For that reason, I use as my first-line agent methadone, starting at 5 milligrams, or if somebody is older or more sensitive to side effects, 2.5 milligrams, given somewhere in the afternoon. 
Um, and I never go above 20 milligrams of methadone. Most people uh, are between 5 and 15 milligrams um, daily. Alternately, I use buprenorphine, um, which uh, is available for the treatment of pain, um, generally in the 1 to 4 milligram range. Usually given once a day, sometimes I'll split that dose. Uh, I also sometimes split the methadone dose because that leads, uh, at least in patients I've seen, to better tolerability in terms of nausea in particular, uh, as well as sedation, which are the two most common, well, the most common side effect is constipation, but nausea and sedation are uh, the more difficult management issues. So methadone, buprenorphine, on occasion I'll use oxycodone, uh, uh, in long-acting formulation, OxyContin, but recognize that OxyContin, uh, in addition to being difficult to access at pharmacies, is oftentimes a e-medicine. It's not a particularly long-acting agent, and so at least you're going to be giving it BID, and I don't like patients to be using opioids multiple times a day. It just makes them think about their symptoms more gives them the impression that they can PRN their way out of uh, RLS, and uh, that is the last message that I want patients on opiates to have, is that they have a lot of flexibility in the dosing. I tell them, I'm running the show here on the opioids. I'm happy to collaborate with you on when you take it, but, uh, you, but we need to work closely together, and I don't want you making decisions on the fly, day to day, on your opioid dosing. Um, I Before I prescribe the medicine, I always check the PDMP uh, and make sure that I'm the only one uh, prescribing it. I have them sign an opioid agreement. At times, I will do uh, urine testing for opioids, although uh, I only use that in cases where I have suspicion that they have been using them um, previously from other providers or getting them um, from non-prescription sources. And other than nausea, sedation, or constipation, are there any symptoms you specifically or side effects you specifically recommend asking the patient about directly? Yeah. Uh, some people will have itching, um, which can be annoying. Um, I've seen mood disturbance with the opioids. Uh, it's a little difficult to tell if that mood disturbance is really due to dopamine agonist withdrawal, as is uh, also known as dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome, DAWS, whether, so whether it's stopping the dopamine agonist or whether it's starting the opioid. Um, and uh, one that's actually fairly common and can be quite difficult to manage are uh, hot flashes, and uh, this can prevent people from using the agent because these are really quite pronounced. In men, um, if those develop, I will uh, get testosterone, total testosterone and free testosterone levels and um, uh, determine whether those are low because uh, if they are uh, testosterone replacement, uh, if that's possible, um, if they don't have prostatic issues, um, then that can manage the hot flashes. 
And the final thing is in patients on methadone, you do need to uh, yourself or have the PCP get an EKG to check for the QTC, make sure it's not more than 500 milliseconds. It's been rare that methadone has provoked this um, prolongation of the QTC in my patients, um, but it is something that you do need to be aware of, particularly if they're on other agents that can prolong the QTC. Okay, thank you. And finally, my last question is, how often do you check in or monitor these patients for follow-up once you started an opiate with them? Uh, in Massachusetts, where I practice, uh, the regulations, Commonwealth of Massachusetts regulations and hospital recommendations or requirements are that we see people at least every four months in face-to-face -face visits. So that's what I do. I see them every three to four months. When I see them, I write electronic prescriptions for today's date, a month from today, two months from today, and three months from today. And then between three and four months, I see them back. If they are unable to make those visits, then I say to them that I am unable to prescribe these medications for them. Thank you so much. And is there anything else you want to add about either severe refractory restless leg syndrome or restless legs with augmentation? We have recent data showing that a large percentage of patients on dopamine agonists in the United States are at doses above FDA recommended maximum doses, particularly patients on pramipexol, where 40% of patients in the U.S., so 100,000 patients in the U.S. taking pramipexol for RLS without Parkinson's disease, 40% uh, of them are above 0.75 milligrams. And roughly half of those are above 1.25 milligrams of pramipexol daily. There is very little explanation for this high dosing other than these patients are augmented. And if they're augmented now and you're giving them these high doses, the augmentation's just going to get worse. And you're just digging yourself and them into a hole, which is going to be harder and harder to dig out of. So the important thing is to recognize this early and have discussions with them about this. They're going to be very reluctant to stop these medicines and give them a path forward and tell them that it's going to be fine on the other side. It's going to be difficult to get through it but it's going to be fine on the other side. If you don't feel comfortable doing this, refer them to an RLS specialist. Uh, go to the RLS Foundation and look for a quality care center. There are 10 to 15 in the United States and refer them to a provider at a quality care center uh, that um, is approved by the RLS Foundation. Dr. Winkleman, thank you so much for answering all the questions and for all this excellent information. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Sogol, for inviting me to give this podcast today. 
Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Dr. Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. Thank you.